Thank you so much. Thank you so much for your prayers, for your welcome. Thank you for holding me in your hearts and in your prayers. And, and, and please be assured that I will very much uh, want to hold you in my heart and in my prayers. I see my ministry as Archdeacon very much as a ministry of service and of support and of encouragement to the wonderful parishes of this Archdeaconry. So uh, thank you very much, and I hope this is the beginning of a, of a prayerful and a loving and a spirit-filled relationship uh, between us. So may I speak in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Um, you may be forgiven if you didn't notice. We had, the, we had that wonderful reading, which Hector read so magnificently as he worked his way through all those extraordinary places. Uh, but you, would, you could be forgiven if you didn't notice uh, in that reading just how momentous is the journey that's being described there in chapter 16 of uh, the book of Acts. It's told in a very understated way, but we should be in no doubt that this is an account of one of the most significant, self-sacrificial, astonishing missionary journeys in the whole history of the church. We might have a slide uh, to show us uh, a little of, a little of, of, uh, of, that, uh, of that journey. It's commonly called Paul's second missionary journey, um, the second of, of four. Uh, uh, chapter 16 only covers a, a, a small part of the whole journey. Um, and as I say, there were, there were um, certainly, certainly three others and four if you count Paul's journey to Rome, where, of course, he was, he was martyred. And if we, can, if we look at the map, we can see just what was involved in those travels. Paul probably walked a good deal of the way. Um, and, uh, and if I tell you that uh, you've kind of got half of modern Turkey there, uh, that, 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 the bit called Asia, and uh, Asia Minor as it was, that's, uh, and that's probably about six or 700 miles from Antioch to Troas. Um, so uh, as, 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 as someone once said, I'm, I, I, and th- those lovely words, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. Paul's feet uh, would certainly have been used to bring good news to, to the people to whom he he ministered. And just a little bit of, of context before um, we launch into chapter 16. Chapter 15 describes the Council of Jerusalem. Paul, if you recall, went to Jerusalem. There you are at the bottom uh, uh, right-hand side of the map. Paul went to Jerusalem to try to find a way through this fundamental disagreement that had emerged in the early church about whether when people came uh, not from a Jewish background to faith in Christ, whether they had to become Jewish first and then had to observe the Jewish law as part of becoming a Christian. This was a very fundamental uh, conflict in in the early church. And I think we can assume that debate was strong and heated in that council. And, and I think we should be encouraged uh, as we think about that. It probably puts into context a little bit of the, some of the debates and the conflicts that we experience in the church today and sometimes that we find quite difficult. And it should encourage us, I think, that to some extent conflict is a natural and in many ways a kind of healthy part 
of being the body of Christ as we try to discern how the Spirit is leading us into all truth. But let's not get diverted uh, into that, except perhaps just to notice, to recall, that the outcome of the Council of Jerusalem is actually quite pragmatic, uh, quite a bit of a compromise. Uh, no one got exactly what they wanted. Um, maybe a lesson for us there in, 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 uh, in our life together. So then after the council, Paul and Barnabas go up to Antioch uh, there. Um, and that, that, then there was some more conflict. Um, um, they, uh, they, they, they parted uh, uh, at that point in some bitterness. Barnabas and Mark go off to Cyprus. And Paul is joined by Timothy, who go off first of all to, uh, uh, you see Derby and Lystra and Iconium just there. Uh, in the uh, uh, kind of middle on the right-hand side. And then another sign of pragmatism, because in spite of arguing fiercely that non-Jewish people need not submit to circumcision and the Jewish law, before embarking on this journey, uh, which Paul knows is bound to provoke controversy about this question of how far non-Jewish converts were bound by the Jewish Lord. Paul, in fact, we're told, ensured that Timothy was circumcised because though his father was Greek, his mother was Jewish. Now, whether this was something that Paul felt was right in principle or whether it was just something kind of quite pragmatic that he thought it was important out of respect for the feelings of uh, some of the Jewish people among whom they might be ministering and to and evangelizing, we can't be sure. But, uh, but it is interesting that, that Paul, in spite of his very strong feelings about this, uh, um, made that, uh, made that uh, decision. And then here are the passage that we heard from Hector uh, begins at, at chapter 6. And, and here we get one of those very strong statements which is such a feature of the book of Acts. Because it's clear that the Holy Spirit is directing this journey. Um, Paul and Timothy, they had wanted to go to Bithynia. Uh, actually, Bithynia isn't marked, but it's kind of roughly, it's the northern bit just under the Black Sea where it kind of roughly says Asia. Paul and Timothy had wanted to go uh, north up to um, Bithynia. But uh, uh, here, as we say, when they tried to, to, they tried to enter Bithynia, the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas, uh, which is kind of right at the uh, western edge of, of Turkey. This book is called, as we know, the Acts of the Apostles. But I think, and as this verse illustrates, it will be much more accurate to call it the acts of God in directing and leading the apostles in their work. Uh, in so much of the most decisive moments in the book of Acts, like Peter's dream at Joppa, which I think you looked at last week, there's a sense almost of the apostles trying to keep up with God, trying to understand where the Spirit is leading, what they're being called to do, both in terms of where they should go but also in terms of these really important debates about how the church needs to adapt 
as it moves outside Israel and encounters other faiths and other cultures. And one of the things that always so impresses and moves me about this book is that it doesn't try to cover all this up. It doesn't try to pretend that the apostles knew exactly what was going on, that they had a clear plan, like as if they were some kind of modern corporate CEO with with a kind of clear strategy that they were executing perfectly in great detail. It doesn't try to pretend any of that. It doesn't try to pretend that the apostles even understood all the implications of what God had done in raising Jesus from the dead and sending the Holy Spirit upon them to preach the gospel to all nations. And it doesn't try to cover up the conflicts that arose between them as they struggled to be faithful both to their heritage of faith and also to what they believed God was revealing to them and calling them to do now, all that was new. As with the Gospels themselves, which are so, so clear so often about the failures of some of these same apostles, you simply wouldn't make up a story in which your most powerful leaders sometimes seem clueless in trying to keep up with where God is leading them. But it's clear from this passage, and especially um, that, that, they're, that they're being called by the Holy Spirit to take the gospel to Macedonia rather than to remain in Asia Minor. So they're being called away from Turkey, across the sea, uh, to um, uh, modern-day Greece. And it's clear that God is directing this missionary work, not Paul. This is God's work, God's plan, God's revealing of himself and his purposes. And human beings, in this case Paul and Timothy, gifted and brave and wonderful and energetic though they are, sometimes struggling to understand and to keep up. Does that remind you of anything? We should perhaps take some encouragement from that, uh, my brothers and sisters, if if, if, if Paul uh, sometimes struggled to keep up with where God was calling him, we might just be a little gentle with ourselves sometimes. And related to that, and really just as relevant, I believe, today is this. Even though we well know it's not true, we often behave as if we think we're taking the Holy Spirit to the world. Whereas, of course, the very opposite is true. This is God's world. God's Holy Spirit is alive and active in all the world. Our job is to try to catch up with that and understand what God's Holy Spirit is already doing and what God's Holy Spirit is calling us to do alongside him in those communities. So I think that we have in this context some really important themes emerging which I would argue are as relevant for us today as in these first years of the church. That this is God's church, God is directing operations, this is God's plan, that this is God's world, that the Spirit is alive and active in it, preparing hearts. Our job is to go and work alongside what God is already doing in his world. And that we should seek to be faithful and responsive Sometimes, as with Paul, setting off to Macedonia, we get it right. But sometimes we struggle with it and we find ourselves in conflict in those struggles. Sometimes things seem crystal clear to us and everyone sees it the same way. 
but sometimes not. All we can do is to seek to be faithful and obedient, to pray, but to recognise that God has the master plan. We might glimpse little bits of it, but if we pretend that we've got it all, that we understand everything, then we are deluding ourselves dangerously. So as I say, for Paul and Timothy, it's clear that the Holy Spirit is calling them to Macedonia. In other words, modern-day Greece. So look, they sail from Troas, first of all, to Neapolis, and very soon they arrive in Philippi. Actually, it seems that Luke, the author of Acts, is probably with them. If you notice uh, in verses 6 to 9, as in the previous five um, verses of the chapter, when Luke describes their movements, he talks about they But now in verse 10, it switches to we. Um, So we might conclude that from this point on, at least, Luke is very much part of this mission as well. So something else might resonate with us there. It's interesting that even the great apostle Paul worked in teams. He recognised that he needed help support and collaboration wasn't always easy I'm sure it wasn't easy to work with Paul Um, as as I've already reminded us uh, in verse in chapter 15 verse 39 we're told that there was very sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas and for a season they parted but that experience didn't make Paul want to launch out on his own and so Paul was joined by Timothy as I've said and by Luke too And it is much better when we work in teams. It's much better when we've got the support and encouragement of other people. And we're also much less likely to become corrupt and dangerous when we work in teams. Because there's some accountability to others when others whom we respect can speak to us honestly and frankly, can challenge us when we might be going astray. That is absolutely vital to the life of Christian ministry. So, they go to Philippi. Uh, Like many cities around the Mediterranean Sea, Philippi is a Roman city, which is predominantly Greek-speaking, with a kind of dominant Greco-Roman culture. But it is also home to a, a huge number of other ethnicities and faiths, including a Jewish population. And Philippi is the first of these Macedonian cities to have been evangelised by Paul. And it seems to have had a very special place in Paul's heart. I think in the interest of time, I won't go into this, but I think it's always wonderful to kind of cross-refer scripture. And if you look at Paul's letter to the Philippians, written probably 10 years uh, after he had uh, first built up the church in that city when he was in prison, uh, it seems to me it's full of enormous tenderness and love for that church. Paul often, uh, nearly always in in his letters, introduces them by talking about thanking God for for God's people in in, in the place to which he's writing. But it seems to me he does so in the letter of the Philippians with particular warmth. And some of the most beautiful uh, and encouraging passages of all Paul's writing, I think, uh, in his letter to, to the Philippians. So maybe if you've um, take some time to, to, to have a look at, at that letter. And, and of course, uh, as we've been hearing about, about missionary partners, of course, the, the church in Philippi supported Paul in his mission 
and ministry, and it's very clear that that was part of his gratitude uh, to them. And the first person we meet is Lydia. How extraordinary. Possibly the first person to be evangelized by Paul in mainland Europe. Uh, A woman. How wonderful that is. And how much flowed from that encounter. As we read, they went on the Sabbath to pray. Uh, They went to pray where where they imagined there would be a gathering of faithful Jewish people. That's what a synagogue is, first and foremost, a place where the faithful gather together to pray and worship and share the scriptures. And it seems that they'd heard that there was a place of prayer by the river, so there they went. And we're told that Lydia was a worshipper of God. Um, So it seems that perhaps, although she um, probably wasn't Jewish herself, um, she had been drawn to faith in God and she had some experience of worship and prayer in a a Jewish context. Lydia is from Thyatira, um, which is actually, um, it's kind of, um, it's kind of in the middle of Turkey. Uh, so um, she's, she's a very good example of a, a, a cosmopolitan, well-travelled businesswoman. She deals in purple cloth, which um, is uh, uh, clearly an indication that she's got quite a business uh, going, and she's clearly a woman of some means. And notice how she comes to faith. And I've heard this echoed a number of times in our worship and our prayer this morning already. Um, the Lord opened her heart to listen eagerly to what was said by Paul. So again, the words may have been Paul's, but the direction, the real work, is always the work of the Holy Spirit. We are always only collaborators, co-workers with God. But then, and this is so, I think, so central to the way that Paul worked and the way in which churches were founded and built up. Um, because as we know, as well as, as well as evangelizing, it's vital to disciple those who come to faith. Then Lydia invited Paul and his companions to come to stay. And I've no doubt that in accepting hospitality from Lydia, Paul is using this opportunity to continue to teach and disciple Lydia and her household. And that is a vital task. And I think, again, there's something very important for us, too, in being willing to let others into our homes. And obviously, over the pandemic, that wasn't really possible. Um, And in being willing to enter the homes of others. There's something really fundamentally Christian and human in sharing our homes and opening our homes and going to the homes of others and being in one another's homes uh, where we can... um, delight in one another and learn from one another. We find exactly the same thing, of course, in the ministry of Jesus, which is so much built on the generosity of people sharing their homes with him and him being willing to stay in the homes of others. On the very first day of his ministry in John's Gospel, after his baptism, two of John's disciples, having heard John proclaim Jesus as the Lamb of God, go and ask him where he's staying. And they stay with him for the whole day. So presumably, like Paul and Lydia, Jesus is teaching and discipling them. And I think we shouldn't discount 
the simple joys of spending time together, enjoying one another. And again, that's been referenced this morning uh, in, 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 in our notices particularly. In both Jesus and in Acts, there is urgency. There's a gospel to be preached. But there is also just time to be spent together, enjoying the fellowship of human beings As Psalm 133 has it, behold how good and lovely it is when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. And I think there's another important lesson for us today as well. We should be purposive and intentional, using our time and our resources in mission and ministry. But we should not always be purposive and intentional. Sometimes we should rest, rest in God and rest with one another, sometimes we should simply enjoy the fact that we are God's children, sisters and brothers, one of another. I never cease to be amazed at the connections which emerge whenever we think and pray and read scripture. The connections between the experiences of the people of Israel the disciples of Jesus, the early church, and our experience today, and indeed, indeed, even the connections that emerge between what we discover in our human living and what we believe about God. And I think that shouldn't surprise us, because this is all God's world. It's all made by God. It all reflects God's character and being, and we are made in God's image. So we should expect to find these connections. And I think as I, as I draw my uh, reflections today to a close, I'm drawn to a verse of the Gospel reading. It's a very rich uh, and dense Gospel reading. I can't possibly, sadly, unpack all of it. But I'm drawn to a verse uh, in the Gospel that we've, uh, we've just heard. It's a passage of astonishing Uh, richness and intensity but let's just hear again a verse um, a verse near the beginning of the reading those who love me will keep my word and my father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them so st john's gospel from which this verse comes explores in depth, it's one of the great themes of John's Gospel, this idea of God making his home with us. We're probably familiar with the great opening, the great the prologue of the Gospel, uh, John 1, which introduces us to so many of the themes that, that he will develop uh, in the Gospel, and especially in that great declaration in John 1, verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We believe that God shares our lives completely, partly in order, of course, to save us and transform us, but I trust as well because God actually wants to share our lives full stop and be with us because God actually loves us. The incarnation, the word made flesh, may have the deeper purpose of leading us into the fullness of life, but it is also an expression of God's delight in us. And God's desire to be alongside us and with us. So here again, parallels with Paul and Lydia. There was purposiveness, there was intention, but there was also, I believe, delight in fellowship. But here in 
in chapter 14. John goes even further than, than, than he goes in chapter 1. Because in chapter 14, John says, those who love me will keep my word and my father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. Not just the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, but we, the father and the word, the father and Jesus will together come and make our home with them. And what is being revealed to us in the scripture is, I think, an extraordinary truth. Yes, God in Christ comes to share our humanity, to dwell with us in order to save us. But God's fuller, deeper purpose is that we are being drawn into the astonishing intimacy and delight and love which is between Jesus and his Father. That astonishing love and intimacy is of such a quality that we, 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 can, we can only, in a sense, glimpse it. We can only, in a sense, as Paul says, uh, as through a mirror dimly, we can, we can only have, a, have the, the, the merest uh, sense of the, the, uh, the beauty and the intensity of that relationship, sustained as it is constantly by prayer. But we are being called into that relationship We are invited to share in the relationship between Jesus and his Father held in the bonds of the Spirit. Jesus is promising here that he and his Father will come and make their home with us, to dwell with us. To teach us, yes, no doubt, but to delight in us, I believe, also. Paul and Timothy and Luke went to stay with Lydia. As I say, there was was something very practical involved, I'm sure. Uh, they, as they no doubt needed somewhere to stay and she needed to be taught and discipled. But there was also deep delight in human and Christian fellowship. They were being afforded a tiny glimpse of the delight and fullness of life and love and joy that is God's plan for us as we are drawn forever into the love that is between Jesus and the Father held in the loving bonds of the Spirit. And my prayer for us today, as we prepare to celebrate the great feast of Jesus' ascension, and beyond that, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, my prayer for us is that we know in our hearts that we are loved And that we are called into that astonishing love uh, which is between Jesus and his Father held in the bonds of the Spirit. And that that is our true home. That is the place of joy and delight and of healing for each one of us. And that in our our fellowship uh, together we, we, we get, we have the, we have the glimpses and the hints and the suggestions of the fullness of that life into which we are being called and and for which we are formed. And so I pray that we may know today that God's love is drawing us into his very life and his very presence. So come, Holy Spirit, come and fill our hearts with your love and draw us into the life and love which is between Jesus 
and the Father. Draw us and hold us. Come and make your home with us and draw us into your eternal home in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray.